Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this episode is part of our ongoing Mary, Queen of Scots series. Last week, we we reached the end of, of Mary's life, but her story lives on, obviously. And this is an interview I recorded before I recorded any of the Mary episodes, because it's an interview with Claire Hunter, and she is the author of a book called Embroidering Her Truth, Mary Queen of Scots and the Language of Power. And if that title sounds familiar to you, it's because I've shouted it out in every single one of these episodes because it was one of my main sources for researching this entire season. This book is, I read it when I was just starting to do my research, which is why the interview was a while ago. And it really helped shape this whole season of the podcast because of what Claire Hunter has done in this book is to what no one else, no other biographer of Mary Queen of Scots has done before, which is to look at her life through the textile she purchased, displayed, gifted, and created. So what Claire says is, in an age when textiles proclaimed power, Mary exploited them to advance her personal and political agenda, affirm her royal lineage, and tell her own story. Claire also wrote here, I felt that Mary was there, pulling at my sleeve, willing me to appreciate the artistry, wanting me to understand the dazzle of the material world that shaped her. And so this is a biography of Mary Queen of Scots, and it literally goes from her whole life just looking at through this lens of fabric and the sewing that she did, that other people did. As we talked about in like every episode, because this uh, biography was so influential on my research, is that Mary, during periods of time where she couldn't safely write a journal, she couldn't keep a diary, but she was able to sew and to stitch. And we really can see both in what she chose to create and also in just the the way that her stitches were, were they even or were they uneven? Just what was her state of mind? Like Mary Queen of Scots embroideries, I think you know from the previous episodes of this series are my, they're so important to me. I find them so fascinating. And it's really even more so than seeing letters or something, just evidence that this was a real person who lived. Anyway, I'm so excited to share this interview with you finally with Claire Hunter. Again, her book, Embroidering Her Truth, Mary Queen of Scots and the Language of Power. It's available in the UK and it's going to be available in North America later this month. And it's such a good book. And I really enjoyed talking with Claire about Mary Queen of Scots and and the textiles of it all. So enjoy. Okay, so I'm joined today from an idyllic part of Scotland, it's uh, Claire Hunter. Welcome, Claire. Thank you, and Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really excited. When I first read about your book, I thought, oh, I'm excited to read this book. And then when I read it, I thought, oh, I really hope I can, I can get a chance to talk to Claire and have her on the podcast, because I think it'll be so interesting to the listeners. And have you um, always been a Mary Queen of Scots fan? I'm a big Mary Queen of Scots fan. Yeah. Actually, here, I'm going to show you something. This is a little Mary Queen of Scots doll. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. It's <laughs> I keep her here while I've been researching her. She's sort of my my mascot. Yeah. Can you tell me about your connection as a Scottish person or just as yourself um, to Mary Queen of Scots? Do you remember when you first felt an interest in her or a connection to her? Well, of course, being Scottish, then she was a Scottish queen. But I think really when I was, when I was very small, I mean, used to play, us little girls used to play in the playground and we used to pick uh, dandelions. And the game then was that you, uh, one of you would try and blow off all the petals of the dandelion. And as you did that, the rest of the little girl gang would chant, Mary Queen of Scots got her head chopped off. Mary Queen of Scots got her head chopped off. So we knew the name very early on. And of course, in the times I was growing up, then I used to be in toy shops, the most wonderful historical dolls. 
which I could never afford and my parents could never afford to buy me. But Mary, Queen of Scots, was amongst those dressed in her black velvet with the white veil. And so I used to yearn longingly through the shop window at the, the, the doll of Mary, Queen of Scots. And when I was writing the book, then through um, eBay, I got my Mary, Queen of Scots doll. Oh, good. I, knew I had her as my mascot on my desk as I wrote. Uh, and also I think, you know, we, we, we were brought up really being taught the history of men in Scotland. And apart from Flora MacDonald and Mary Queen of Scots, we didn't hear about other women in past times. And so she's always been a feature of our, our kind of knowledge of, of Scottish history as a woman. So I've always had a, yes, I've always had an interest. And, and over time, you know, you would have the Four Mary song, you know, last night I saw about Four Marys, although actually it's not written about Mary Queen of Scots and her four female companions, the Four Marys. We always believed in Scotland it was. And that was always sung, you know, at, at Cayleys and things like that. So she's, she's always been there in the background, so to speak. I wanted to bring her more into my foreground through the prism of textiles. Obviously, there are hundreds of books written about Mary Queen of Scots, but they're mostly dealing with her personal and political life through a historical idea. And I wanted to use her textiles as the focus to see what that might reveal of her that maybe hadn't been revealed before. I really appreciated your book because I've been researching her recently and I get something different from every book, but yours was presenting. Well, I, I'm hoping you can explain how you did some of the research, but you were looking at sort of lists of what textiles were bought and when, and then in your book, you relate them to, and this is what was happening in her life at that time. And that shows in a very tangible way, the way that other books sort of imagine what she was thinking. Your book can say, well, here's what she was planning. Here's the textile she was ordering. So here's what we know. Here's what we know she was thinking, probably. It's a whole different yes. way of seeing and, it. And yeah. before I actually wrote the book, that was my hope. You know, when I was researching it, then I had discovered all the fantastic treasures accounts during her reign. Now, this is like her kind of Amazon purchase list. Yeah. So it lists in detail all the thread, all the all the fabrics, uh, the clothes, the fees to tailors. Uh, it says how much she was buying. It says where that was coming from. Was it, you know, a, a Paris black? Was it a, a you know, a, a, a Venetian satin? Uh, often it says the colour and also it says how much it cost. So that was very interesting. So I had all those. And the other thing that was there were all her inventories. So both the inventories of her father, James V of Scotland, and her mother, Mary de Guise, which, of course, Mary inherited when she came back to Scotland. The inventory of what Mary herself bought in France when she went uh, to marry the, the Dauphin. And when before she came back to Scotland, she obviously went on a massive spending spree and bought you know some fantastic gowns and some extraordinary bed hangings. Interestingly, only one set of uh, church dressings, furnishings, presumably because she was very aware that Scotland was, you know, the Reformation had happened and that Scotland was looking on decoration with askance. So she was very um, circumspect in what she brought back in ecclesiastical terms. Um, and then there were the inventories of what was in the royal wardrobe store when she was queen. Many of many of the not many but quite a lot of the items then annotated by her valet de chambre, Servi de Comte, and he would say what Mary did with those textiles, either with her own clothes, or with the clothes of Mary de Guise, her mother, or indeed what she did with the textiles that they had in store, because in those days, uh, fabric itself was um, kind of uh, hoarded as treasure. You know, Henry VIII, the King of England, you know, basically when he died, then there were over, you know, 55,000 yards of textiles in his royal wardrobe, you know. So we're talking a large amounts that were kept. Now, she would, she would basically distribute these either to ladies of the Scottish court whose friendship she was wanting to win. She gave them to her own four Marys, the friends that I've talked about who had been with her since her child. And she gave them to them because that because she had actually worn them, then they had more potency as, in a sense, a gift of self. She gave them to some nobleman when she was trying to, again, win their favour. And, um, and indeed, she took out the raw wardrobe some of the clothes of her mother and had them adapted for her own use, including about five cloaks, which, of course, were symbolic of protection. So all those inventories and latterly, 
then we have the last inventory of what she left behind when she fled to England, what she left behind in Scotland. So those inventories reveal a lot, and some of them are those annotations that her valet de chambre made were dated. So what I then was looking at was correlating what was happening in Mary's life with what she was either purchasing or what she was using, what she was taking out of the store and for what purpose. And what did that tell us about either her political intent or indeed her emotions at the time? And can you talk a bit about the fact that she wore black so much of the time when she was in Scotland? I thought that was very interesting. Yes, well, black in the mid-16th century, we're talking about black was the colour of statesmanship. So Mary wore black in order to emphasise her role as a political queen, as well as a personal queen to Scotland. It was also the colour of constancy. So again, it had an emotional um, symbolism behind it, which meant that she would be loyal. Uh, and I think it's very interesting to look at how, you know, we've got very few portraits of Mary, but the portraits we have wearing her black, as you say, uh, compared to the portraits that Elizabeth I of England at the same time was making of herself, Elizabeth is festooned in, you know, um, ribbons and lace and pearls and, you know, huge uh, ruffs and huge sleeves and farthingales, etc. And she was trying to show herself as an expansive queen, whereas Mary is trying to portray herself as a trustworthy queen who has got political acumen and is going to lead the country in an effective way. Um, and that's why black was an important colour to her. Behind the scenes, of course, at court revelries or um, at mass, etc., then there is another wardrobe, an alternative wardrobe, which is in her inventories, which isn't black. So there must have been times when she changed out of her, when she could take on a more social role amongst her own intimate court, when she then gowned, donned gowns of um, all sorts of colours and you know, striped with silver, braided with gold, a whole other wardrobe of finery. But we have no portraits to allow us to know what that looked like. I found it really interesting too, just the the way that you were researching and writing this book. To, you really get a sense of that she was a very aesthetic person. She really loved fine things. She loved beautiful things. And you talk yeah. about how many dresses she had was... I don't want to say disproportionate, but she couldn't possibly have had a chance to wear all of them when she had such a large wardrobe. Yes, but compared to the wardrobe of Elizabeth I, I mean, when Elizabeth I died, she had 2,000 gowns in her inventory. Mary, when she the final inventory, um, you know, it was basically under 20 gowns that she possessed mm -hmm. at that time. Of course, she'd been in captivity for all those years before that. Um, and often, uh, I don't know because we have no record of it, but a number of Elizabeth's gowns would be given to her as gifts, ambassadors from courtiers, from other uh, European rulers looking to court her favour. And it, might, it may well be that Mary herself, we have no listing of the gifts given to Mary, but mm -hmm. it could well be that some of the gowns that she possessed were indeed gifts as, as barter. Well, actually, but just speaking of that, there was one point at which Mary herself sent a gift to Elizabeth um, that did. included her own stitching, right? She did. And again, the, you know, this is a time when elite women are taking up embroidery um, really to um, be, as it, it, another form of writing, really, uh, a form of different, a different kind of agency. Before that, embroidery had mainly been in the hands of convents and monasteries. Um, and also the um, equipment and materials for embroidery was rougher and readier. But in the 16th century, we see a major change. We see the Reformation coming. So we see um, embroidery moving into secular hands more. And we also see uh, through Spain, finer needles being imported to the rest of Europe. And so suddenly finer embroidery can be done. And I like to think of the ladies of the court sitting, looking very docile, with their heads bowed over their embroidery, but actually listening to every single word that is being said around them and having their own private conversations about what that means politically. So when Mary was in captivity then, as you see, and she then um, made Elizabeth uh, a number of, of, of gifts. She made her little embroidered nightcaps, but the most extraordinary gifts she sent her to, when the, it was a time when Mary had a small window of opportunity to, she'd lost Elizabeth's favour because the plots made against Elizabeth 
which when Mary was implicated, although not guilty at that point. And basically, the she then decided that she had the small window of opportunity and these, these these great letters to the French ambassador asking to be you know, brought back uh, the finest silk, uh, um, silk fabric, the finest that can be got, uh, to get silver thread. Um, because she has some uh, some work to do, but it must be done in haste. And um, and then we get another letter saying, "Oh, the silver thread you sent is far too thick. Could you send me a thinner version of it, finer version of it?" And what she actually made for Elizabeth was a skirt front, which was of entwined thistles and roses. Uh, also had honeysuckles and pinks, which have also got some uh, are also symbolic. But as you know, the rose, the Tudor rose, was a symbol of English sovereignty and the thistle, the symbol for Scotland. Uh, red is the, is the colour of blood bonds. And the fact that Mary embroidered it with her own hand, Elizabeth being a needlewoman herself, because she was, we've got evidence of her embroidering it as, as a girl, uh, would have understood exactly how much time Mary had spent in its making. And it was reported back to Mary that the Elizabeth, uh, that the English found it very nice. Um, but, uh, you know, which maybe wasn't as high enough praise for me at the time, but all, he also reported that he found, he thought that the, the English Queen had much softened towards Mary. So mm. the gift had done, had served its political duty. It has done, it had done what she hoped it might do, uh, but it didn't win her liberty. And just going back to what you said a moment ago about how stitching became sort of a way for for these royal women to express themselves in a way, you know, we don't have their journals, but we can see based on what they chose to stitch or, you know, that how even the stitches are, maybe what was going through their mind. Can you talk a bit about, you mentioned this in your book, Catherine de Medici and the stitching that we know that she did and Mary would have seen her doing that. Yes, it's, it's interesting that Catherine de Medici, because we imagine her as this kind of formidable woman who engaged in black magic, etc. But there is a wonderful, again, um, a, a report of, of Catherine de Medici every afternoon sitting with what was called lacus work, which is a kind of open white network in which you can embroider images. And if you imagine it, she learned it in the convents in Italy, where she was put there for safety when her life was threatened as the, Medi as the downfall of the Medici was underway. And then at 14, she was sent to France uh, to marry Henri, uh, but of course he had his mistress there, the, the intelligent, cultured Diane de Poitiers, who was running the show. And so it must have been really demoralising for Catherine to find a way to manage this ménage à trois um, between the three of them. And I imagine her every afternoon just thinking, this is my time. I'm just going to sit quietly and embroider, forget what has happened in my past, forget what has the, the kind of challenges I have around me at the moment, and I'm just going to have an hour or two, which is my time. And mm -hmm. when she died, they discovered over a thousand pieces of that lacus work. Mm -hmm. So it just shows you how important it was to her as a kind of um, therapeutic, in my view, aid to keeping calm in what were very difficult circumstances. She was 10 years without children, you know, until she actually became pregnant, which for a queen was very dangerous. Um, and uh, because they could be um, done away with, basically, uh, if they didn't produce the, the, the wanted heir to the throne. So she had a very, very difficult time. And we know that Mary, Queen of Scots, had various health issues. Obviously, there was a lot of uh, mental anguish, stress from what was going on around her. So I thought it was really interesting to bring it back to to the embroidery that she did. And you mentioned that she would be stitching while she was taking meetings with her advisors. She was just kind of constantly embroidering. Because, yeah. Yes, and we don't know much about her embroidery in Scotland and we don't have any evidence of that embroidery. But once she moved into captivity in England, then it became both a salve and a crusade in a sense, because she had her letter censored and some confiscated but her embroidery was unedited. She could, through her embroidery, put down what she wanted and nobody could interfere. The other thing about sewing, is, is, you know, as, as many people listening will know, is that sewing is sociable. And Mary had lived a very lonely time of it at the Scottish court. She had no family of her own 
apart from her half-brothers and sisters, who she hadn't been brought up with. She had no, really, no close friends, apart from her four Marys, who ultimately, apart from one, did marry and moved into, the, into their own families. She had nobody she could trust. She had no great advisor, as, again, Elizabeth did to William Cecil. And so she was very, very isolated. So she moves to captivity, and one would have thought that was isolating, but actually, in her household, she had Bess of Hardwick, who was a very redoubtable, spirited, energetic, creative, keen embroiderer, keen needlewoman. She had her own household with her valet de chambre, what were called her chamber children, and her ladies-in-waiting, etc. And you can imagine that scene of a wet afternoon of them all sitting around with their sewing, helping one another, saying, could you finish that off for me? You know, have you got any more of that brown thread? Having a laugh as they devised the embroidery that she and Bess did together. Uh, there's a lot of mischief in there. And I've, you know, I've spent many years doing community textile projects. And I know if you get a group of women together to design something, then eventually, then it becomes a bit ribald in its humour and stories are told and shared. It would have been the same in Mary's Day. It would have been exactly the same. There would have been a lot of laughter. So finally, in that, although a captive, she had camaraderie. And that must have been a great solace to her, never mind the rhythmic solace that embroidery itself brings. Can you describe the, the large project that it seems she and Bess of Hardwick were working on together? Yes, they worked in a set of, of um, bed hangings together. And again, this was very novel at the time, what they decided to do, because they decided to do um, make it through using little parts of embroidery, little um, patches of embroidery. Well, they're not that small actually, but they're about so about 12 inches by 14 inches, different different shapes, cruciforms, um, rectangles, etc. Some are larger than others. But basically to do these smaller pieces of embroidery, which then would be appliqued to a large piece of cloth and act as probably bed hangings. And luckily for us, because Bess was such a great curator of textiles, and when she died, insisted in her will that the textiles remain within the family, we still have a number of both her and Mary's embroideries, and they can be seen at Oxburg Hall in Norfolk. Uh, and there's some in the V&A Museum in London, and there's two uh, of Mary's and one of Bess's in the Palace of Holyrood House in Edinburgh. So it's fantastic to have those actual embroideries that those that they did together. And their idea was that they, when they were assembled, now we don't know what the scheme would was, but the two women would have a scheme so that as you read through and along and up and down, the, the embroideries would have been placed in a relationship to each other to basically amplify the meaning one to the other. Um, so sometimes that would have been done, as I say, with mischief in mind. So you saw one image and then looked to the other. And if you could get the connection, then you would understand that there was there was something clever that they had done with with uh, putting those those two images together. Sadly, we don't know what that arrangement was. Um, and the they used a lot of um, books coming out at the time of kind of like encyclopedias of flora and fauna, etc. And they used a lot of those as source material, but often they, particularly Mary, would adapt them or add another motto to something to give them another meaning. Can you talk about her her stitchery or her piece that's the cat, the ginger cat with the mouse? And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy, I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now, but also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just 
going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. The ginger cat. Well, the ginger cat has to be my favorite piece. And um, so there's, there's, there's an embroidery um, which, which originally would have been her, her uh, source material, would have been a book by Conrad Gesner of the time. Uh, and it's his black and white woodcut that she has copied for that embroidery. But of course, she has cut, because she's embroidering it, she has colored it in thread. And this, she chose to make it a tabby cat, i.e. a red-brown cat, in ba- basically to personify it as Queen Elizabeth I. And, uh, and she's, she's, she's changed the, kind of the, the expression of the cat a little bit from Conrad's, Conrad Gesner's original. And so this cat's rather smug and its whiskers are a little bit more aggressive. But the most interesting thing is that she's inserted, Mary herself inserted into that picture, a little mouse. And in Mary's picture of that cat, its tail is, is basically is out towards the mouse, but the cat's paw is pressing very firmly on the mouse's tail. And really, therefore, it was an expression of Mary's own feelings about her, her captivity. And interestingly, the mouse is very lumpen, it's very squalid, and it's, it's really as if Mary drew that herself. And again, if that's the case, then it basically captures Mary's own sense of lack of self-worth, her own emotional and political immobility at that time. So there's a tragedy in that picture, although it seems to be of a jolly cat, but really it's about being trapped. And um, and I think that in, when, with Mary's embroidery, she's added again, that wasn't in Gessner's original, she's added in a kind of trellis carpet that's in, in blue and gold, quite, you know, pattern carpet. And I think, well, why did Mary spend all those hours doing that? And the, the needle in those days was symbolic of kind of an arrow piercing its target. And so I like to think that Mary chose to embroider on and on with this particular piece to pierce through it and somehow to try and get uh, through to Elizabeth, however vicariously, and pull her close. I love I love the way that you just described that. And it's it's similar in the book because upon first seeing when I first saw a picture of that cat piece, I just thought, oh, that's that's funny. That's that's odd looking. And I thought, is this true? Is that really something Mary Queen of Scots did? Because it's 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 so striking looking and so interesting. And then of course it is. And then you visited, is it at Hardwick Hall? Is that where you saw it's it? At the Palace of Hollywood House. Oh, at Hollywood House, yeah. In Edinburgh, yes. And, yeah. and I went to see it there, and it was just fantastic to see it close up. They took it out of the case for me, which was wonderful, the creators. Mm-hmm. And, and what was really interesting to me, you know, it was the, it was the nearest I'd actually come to being in Mary's presence, uh, to, to, you know, see her. I couldn't touch it, but I could be inches away from it. And her embroidery was very unsettled. I mean, Mary actually wasn't a fantastic embroiderer. She was more interested in the content rather than the technique. Bess was a very good embroiderer, and you can tell that from her stitching. So Mary's embroidery is uneven. You can see how it kind of flows along for a while, 
and then it stumbles and there's a bit of kind of bit of an erratic stitching going on until until it starts to flow again. Um, so her tenacity in terms of embroidery, I mean, in that one embroidery, I counted there would be over 10,000 stitches. Now, Mary did both you know, large numbers of these small pieces for these hangings that she invested together. Uh, she also did some cushions. And when she went for her execution and there was an inventory made of her possessions, there were over 300 pieces of embroidery that were mostly unfinished. But there's also other embroideries that we do not have, but have been described. So the amount of work, the amount of sewing that she did is extraordinary. And that's why I call it a crusade. It was through her sewing that she was basically capturing her own testimony for posterity, and particularly for her son, James I of, of England and VI of Scotland, who, of course, she'd been, um, uh, she'd had to leave behind in Scotland when he was 10 months old and who she never saw again. And he'd been brought up by the uh, reformist nobles to believe his mother was an adulteress, was a murderer. And so she had to get her story, her real story, through to him. And she used embroidery to do that. But we don't have the actual embroidery, but we do have a written description of it. That's so fascinating because there's a lot, there's so much has been written, including recently, about her letters and the way that she wrote them in code and things like that. But just knowing that her embroidery was also a way for her to communicate. Yes, and was also coded through its imagery and its relationship of an image to a mortal, then it is a form of visual code as well. You know, I was going to say that only those who knew what she was referring to would be able to really understand what she was saying in that piece. Of the embroideries that exist, if people want to be able to see them in person, so the cat that's at Hollywood House and then yes. Hardwick Hall, you write in your book as well. There's Hardwick Hall has uh, two cushions by Mary. One is usually on display and it's also got a large number of embroideries by Beth of Hardwick. But, and Hardwick Hall itself is the most fabulous place to visit for anybody who's interested in textiles. But, but just because it's a glorious place to, to see, Beth built it as a, as a kind of to basically counter the accusation that she was an ambitious woman, which was seen as something terrible in, in the 16th century. And so she then built this extraordinary, most beautiful place in England at the time. Uh, and because she was such a creative person, then it's an, it's an extraordinary uh, building and filled with tapestries and textiles because she, she adored them so much. And then Oxborough Hall in Norfolk, which again is completely charming in itself, has got a large number of both Mary and Bess's embroideries. Uh, they've been assembled onto uh, green velvet at some point in past centuries, we're not sure when. And uh, so you can see a large number of her, of 30 of them, I think just over 30 of them are verified as Mary's because they carry her monogram or her cipher or have a thistle or something that's a reference to Scotland. And others were uncertain whether it was her or Bess who made them. But if you look very close at the stitching, then you can hazard a guess. Mm-hmm. Just based on the technique, as you were yes. describing. Yeah. We use the same technique, but it's uh, Bess is the finer uh, needlewoman. Actually, just while we're speaking about Bess of Hardwick, can you describe, I thought this was so fascinating, the project that she had commissioned that was textile portrayals of famous women from history? Yes. Well, these are at Hardwick Hall and it is just amazing to see them because they are as rich obviously the colors will have faded a bit but she used the recycled vestments that had been confiscated during the reformation the english reformation for them they're obviously the work of professional embroiderers but best probably and mary when she came into bess's uh, bess's husband's care then um, would possibly have have stitched on them as well and they are life-size um, images of women through time, through mythology, through history, as a kind of celebration of women's courage, intelligence, vitality, and importance. And they are ex- absolutely extraordinary and beautifully displayed at Hardwick Hall. So another treat for anybody who goes there. And just pivoting back from from Mary and Bess and their stitching itself back to the the textiles that she would have acquired. Something else I was just hoping you could describe was how you write about her execution and her ensemble. 
and what the significance of that. Can you describe what you found out? Well, of course, you have that that image of Mary walking to what was her execution. Uh, She wears her iconic black um, robe, the gown, and a trailing white veil, which, of course, white was the colour of innocence as well as the colour of spirituality. And then she's taken on to what was a black velvet-clad platform. The um, executioners are dressed in black, and around her are the great and the good of men of both the court and the locality in black. There's a fire blazing in the in the in the um, fireplace, and then it comes to the point when Mary has to kneel down in order to have sadly her head chopped off, and her ladies, two of her ladies in waiting, uh, prepare her, and they take off her outer gown to reveal her her undergown, which isn't a petticoat, it's just an undergown, which was of fiery red, which was the liturgical colour and the Catholic faith of martyrdom. And then they remove her black sleeves to, to again reveal undersleeves of red. And so there is this glow of Mary in amongst all this black walking to her death in a moment of sartorial triumph as a martyr because this is the colour of martyrdom and Mary to the very end was using her textiles as statements, as declarations of who she was. I had heard before about that she had the reveal of the red at her execution, but just the way that you described it and the meaning of it and in the context of your whole book where you're saying she was silenced in so many ways, yes. but through her textile work, like she's screaming, like you can Absolutely. really see. Yeah. And, and, and of course, it's being heard by us now which is wonderful. It did reach an audience, you know, at the time, not maybe. Although I like to think that wearing the red, yes, the colour of martyrdom, but also Elizabeth's first mother, Anne Boleyn, when she was executed, she had also worn red. And so I like to think that Mary had a double intent there, that she was also echoing Anne Boleyn's execution as a, as a, a reminder to Elizabeth I, that actually women are brought down by the greed of men when often they are innocent. I just, I find it so, you were saying, you know, she was giving up these messages and now today we can understand them. And through your book, you're kind of, with your experience and your knowledge of textiles and stitching, you're kind of the translator. You're saying, (laughs) here's what she was doing. And then through, you can explain and here's what that means. And so I really appreciate that. Yes, and, and it'd be interesting, Anne, to know, you know, if you took other people, I mean, Catherine Domenici, again, her infiltrates are fascinating. There are other people, if you did that same approach by women, what, what would be revealed about them that we've never been told by what has largely been male document documenters of the time, you know, of, of contemporary to those women, uh, or male historians later on, who had no interest in textiles. And the interior world that these women surrounded, were surrounded by. Because women at court lived mainly interior worlds. I mean, they did hunt, they did go out, etc. But they weren't, the world of, of their power was mainly interior. And so their interiors were the important background to their presence. How did you first get the idea to look at these inventories? My first book, Threads of Life, was about the social, emotional and political significance of sewing. And one of the chapters was really about power. And I chose Mary Queen of Scots as my kind of central figure for that, for that chapter. And for my initial research, discovered the inventories. Because she was just part of one chapter, there was absolutely no way I could then really go into what those inventories could tell us. And that's why I thought, actually, there might be another book that is just about Mary. And then I could really use these inventories. And not just the inventories of her, but of her father, of her mother. Um, I looked at Catherine de Medici's inventories as well. I looked at inventories made when Mary was a child at the court of France, which lists all the extraordinary child attire she was she was wearing of Venetian satins and short silks and uh, cloth of silver and gold when she was you know eleven years of age. Um, so all of them are um, really really fascinating for what they tell us of the kind of importance. You know, Mary in France was a political prize. So she was dressed as such when she comes back to Scotland. And I, I love the fact for her first parliament, 
she and her four maids just spent quite a large amount of money on dressing her four maids in their ceremonial clothes of purple velvet. And uh, they were young. They were all 17, 18 year olds. So to have them processing down the, the high street in Edinburgh with their long trains fanning out behind them, sparkling their jewels, was an extraordinary declaration of female power at that, and, mm. and at that time. It's a, a really... Everyone who's listened to this episode, I would imagine, is going to run away and go read your book right away because everything, everything that you've just described is there's so much more of exactly this sort of discussion in your book. And so I really encourage everybody to look at it. I believe it's been out in Scotland, in the UK for a while now. It's only just coming out in North America. Have you had any feedback from from readers? Yes, so very, very nice feedback. I mean, luckily for me, because you're always, when you're writing a, a book that's based on historical fact, then you're terrified that somebody's going to, you're going to get lots of emails saying, well, actually, no, it was a Tuesday, not a Wednesday, that, you know, Mary Queen Scott's yeah. met darn near husband, that kind of thing. So luckily, a couple of small things, but nothing major. And um, and yes, for um, both when I go and do book events, or I get, which is always lovely when you get emails from people just telling you, I just had to write because actually I, I really found your book fascinating and I really enjoyed it. And I, I learned so much more about Mary. And obviously what I was hoping to do with this book was to uh, reveal Mary in a much broader way than she's usually shown uh, through her textiles and, and, and give people a different kind of insight into her both as a woman and a queen. And uh, from the feedback I get, it seems that the book has achieved that, which makes me very happy. Of the many things I appreciated about your book was it also really presents her as a person because so many of the writings about her are saying she comes across as sort of just a victim of circumstance. And you're saying like, well, here's what John Knox was doing and here's what her brother was doing. And she was just kind of flailing around. But your book Mm. really puts her at the center. Who is she and what was she doing and what were her actions? And I really appreciated that. And Mary was a very intelligent, very highly educated woman. And although in many people's eyes, she made some very poor decisions, she took her own political risks. She did weigh up what, you know, people would have her marrying both Darnley, her second husband, and then Boswell from passion. I actually don't think Mary was a passionate person in that sense. I think she cared for her position as the uh, the Queen of Scotland, as a, as a, as a basically appointed by God. She was a very devout person, and she saw this as, as something that she had to safeguard, not for her own ang- aggrandizement, but because it was what she was put into the world to do. And and her marriages were all expedient in her eyes at that particular time, at that specific time. And we haven't got, people would have to read the book to go into the, de- the detail behind those. But, um, the you know, the, there is you know a lot of evidence there that Mary was, was choosing carefully how she approached her life and her reign. And then it all got out of control as she then became, basically, it, it, it became too difficult, too challenging. For her to do and as I say she had no one advising her nobody she could trust around her whereas Elizabeth I always had William Cecil at her back as her protector Mary did not have a protector she was having to make her own way and I would say and at the point that this episode is coming out people will have heard six hours of of me talking about Mary Queen of Scots but I think she did the best she could given the circumstances Better than a lot of other people in the same role, I would think. Given the circumstances, and, and if you think of the circumstances, you know, of, of, of being, you know, her father dead when she was just days old, sent away from her mother at the age of five to the French court, even her four Marys taken away from her at that point so she could absorb the culture of the French court and the language without them around her. Uh, losing her um, her first husband on um, Francois II, in terrible circumstances, you know, in, in with her at his bedside as he died, her, the real love of her life at that point, and her a widow, not wanted in France, couldn't, didn't know where else to go in Europe, and and came back to Scotland. That was not very enthusiastic about her return, 
Um, and then married Darnley, her second husband, who, of course, then was murdered. She was implicated in the crime and then forced to marry Boswell for different reasons, which, again, I won't go into. Uh, and then basically, very shortly after they married, being defeated and um, and imprisoned. And she was 24 all, and, and miscarried, had, had born a, a son, had miscarried, had, you know, had her life threatened on numerous occasions, and basically then at 24 is imprisoned with nothing around her. Uh, with two two uh, gentlewomen at the, at the very start of that. And um, and then eventually uh, you know, she fled into captivity in England. So, uh, so in that way, a, a, a tragic, tragic life. And then the odd glimmer we get of her um, when she's... You know, at, at, when when everything is the few moments where everything seems to be going well, then we have a charismatic queen, somebody who's energetic, who's as I say is very intelligent, and um, and who's spirited and courageous, but who's brought down by the ambitions of those around her. Yeah, it was just the I don't want to say perfect, but just a storm of just so many people things that had been happening long before she was alive, the political climate, it was just, it was just too much for her. It was, yeah, too much for anyone. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about all of this stuff. Thank you for inviting me, as I say. I was, when I was planning this, these episodes, I asked my listeners, what do you, what are you excited to learn about Mary Queen of Scots? And somebody said, I want to learn more about her embroidery. And I said, oh, Oh, there's going to be a whole episode <laughs> just about that. Just wait. Yeah. But thank you so much again. Not at all. So I'll have to listen in to the others actually as well. Please take care, Anne. So Claire's book is called Embroidering Her Truth, Mary Queen of Scots and the Language of Power. It's available now in the UK. It's going to be available in North America later this month on August 22nd, apparently. And I want to let you know also about what Claire is up to and if you want to know more about what she does. So she has another book that is called Threads of Life. And there is a chapter in that about Mary, Queen of Scots, um, but it's also talking about just other women in history and their, their life through sewing. So Threads of Life, it explores the power of sewing and why so many of its stories have been forgotten. It's so interesting. That one's available all over the place. It's already out. And she also has a website that's called Sewing Matters. And so this website is a place where you can read about, explore, and discover the social, emotional, and political significance of needlework. So she writes that while she was writing her books, she came across many fascinating, forgotten, little-known, and overlooked stories of sewing. It is these that she wants to share, and she also invites us to tell our own. So Claire has been involved for the last 30 years. She's been involved with textiles as a community artist, exhibition curator, and banner maker. In 1986, she set up Needleworks in Glasgow, working with people of all ages and cultures, using sewing as a way to celebrate local history, document community experiences, and share personal concerns through the creation of wall hangings and banners. I love her work. I love talking with her. I encourage you to read her book, um, Embroidering Her Truth, and also Threads of Life. Links to both of those will be in the show notes. And also just go to her website, which is sewingmatters.co.uk. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And next week, we're going to be getting to the the final episode of the Mary Saga, which is not to say the final episode of this season, but we're going to be looking at Mary's legacy. And also we're going to be talking about her score, the Scandalicious score. I've, it's it's going to be a whole discussion. I have some special guests are going to be coming with their thoughts about how she's going to score and all the various categories. There's also going to be some special awards and things. Anyway, just kind of wrapping up Mary's saga as a whole is going to be next week. So I am looking forward to sharing that with you all. And also note after that, there are going to be more episodes in this season because there's a couple more people from Mary Queen of Scots life who are worth their own episodes. So stay tuned for that as well. Anyway, so this is Vulgar History. My name is Anne Foster and you can keep up with me on various social medias. I do want to clarify, I don't mean like join all the social medias and follow me on them. I just mean like if you happen to be on one of these things, look for me there. So I'm on TikTok at Vulgar History. I'm on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod. I'm now, ironically, given the topic of this episode and the title of this book, I'm on threads 
at Vulgar History Pod. And I also have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Writer. And when you join there by giving a small monthly donation, you get early ad-free access to all episodes of this podcast, as well as depending on what level you donate at, you also get access to our special bonus episodes, including Vulgar Peace Theater, where I talk about costume dramas in episodes. The episodes of Vulgar Peace Theater generally are longer than the movies themselves that we talk about. I think that's that's all the reminders. Oh, merch, obviously, merch store. So speaking of Mary Queen of Scots and her stitching and her cat stitching, there is a new d- newish design in the merch store, which is inspired by Mary Queen of Scots cat embroidery, which is a much less um, depressing <laughs> image because it was drawn by Jan Jupiter, my my frequent collaborator from the Netherlands. So it says a cat, but instead of the orange cat representing Elizabeth, it is a tortoiseshell cat representing my cat Hepburn, who is next to me as I say this. And instead of a lump of a mouse representing Mary Queen of Scots being depressed, it's a happy little mouse who's just chilling. So anyway, it's gorgeous. I ordered myself. You can get this design on t-shirts and stickers and mugs and all kinds of things, but you can also get it on a pillow cover. And I ordered one for myself and it just arrived and I love it. It's maybe my favorite thing I've ever owned. So I have my own treason cushion and it makes, it brings me great joy. Anyway, so there's two different merch stores. Um, and I did that because if you're in the US, Public seems to work really well for you. And you can get to that one just by going to vulgarhistory.com store. If you live not in the US and the shipping is better through a service called Redbubble and you can get the merch, all the same designs at vulgarhistory.redbubble.com. Again, all those links are in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey, this ongoing saga of Mary Queen of Scots. And yeah, next week we're going to be looking at her score and all that sort of thing. And so until next time, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. So you've heard of Florida Man, but what about Florida Chupacabra? That's right, the urban legend is real and lurking in the Everglades in the new horror comedy show from Realm, Low Life. Low Life follows a Chupacabra exterminator in South Florida who becomes unlikely allies with a marine biology student when a standard house call goes horribly wrong. It looks like there's a new monster in their midst, but there's more than one secret hiding in the swamp. Low Life is a funny, twisty mystery that also has some pretty scathing commentary on corporate elitism and ecofascism. So you're in for a wild ride and some razor-toothed chupacabras. Listen and subscribe to Low Life wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at realm.fm.